Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to welcome Courtney Fung, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Hong Kong University, to discuss her book, China and Intervention at the UN Security Council, Reconciling Status, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney. Thank you very much for having me, Susan. China is a veto-holding member of the UN Security Council. Yet Chinese officials have been skeptical of using the powers of the UN to pressure nations accused of human rights violations. Um, The PRC has emphasized the norm of sovereignty and rejected external interference in its own affairs. Um, Your book interrogates why China, as a member of the UN Security Council, has sometimes acquiesced to pressuring from nations, uh, from nation, other nations on the Security Council uh, who wish to um, intervene when, uh, uh, in the case of mass human rights abuses. And, and your answer to why China has behaved this way focuses on, on status. Um, you identify two conditions under which a state will act, emphasizing that social constructions um, by way of public discourse of regime change really matter, um, especially when we embed them within the wider material conditions. So I want to start with your three cases. Um, You look at uh, Darfur, uh, 2004 to 2008, uh, Libya, 2011 to 2012, and Syria, 2011. And I was just wondering if you could just first remind listeners of those of those three cases and what was at stake. Sure. Um, these three cases are sitting as the apex cases for China when they come to understand the borders and the parameters in which they're willing to invoke intervention, non-consensual intervention, i.e. when the state has not permitted the UN to intervene in its domestic politics, and when the state itself is actually perpetrating mass atrocity crimes against civilians. The reason why these three cases are the most difficult for Beijing to address is because they are all occurring against a very rich and diverse public debate, this public discourse, saying that these leaders of these particular countries, Sudan, Libya, and Syria, must go in order to stop the mass atrocity crimes from occurring. And so for a government like China that has a very um, principled position regarding intervention, there is a real concern that intervention could end up seeging into regime change. This foreign-imposed regime change is the true bete noir for China to consider, um, especially as a state very concerned about making sure that these types of actions do not occur against China. And so in looking at these three cases, Darfur, Sudan, Libya, and then Syria, you're looking at a series of cases that all occur in sort of a window under the Hu Jintao into the Xi Jinping administrations leading China. And they're all occurring, again, with this very rich public debate. 
um, saying that these leaders need to leave. And they're all slightly different, actually. There is variation in each of these cases. So if you think about the Darfur case of 2004, there was a real debate about to what extent mass killing, genocidal acts, genocide was occurring in this region of Sudan. And so the UN Security Council gets involved in terms of trying to offer a referral to the International Criminal Court in trying to impose sanctions and also pushing off a massive peacekeeping mission, um, the UNAMID UNAU hybrid peacekeeping mission known by its acronym UNAMID. Um, and this is a Chapter 7 robust peacekeeping mission that does not need to operate necessarily with consent of the state. And again, all of these you know, tools used by the UN Security Council representing the United Nations are actually quite offensive. They're not trying to work with Sudan to, re to resolve the problem per se. They're still leaving the space to try and determine to what extent Sudan is actually responsible for the crimes taking place. And it's a very interesting case, um, in particular because my argument is that you have to understand that there are very direct effects of this intangible variable status, how China tries to understand itself vis-a-vis -vis its peers. And China is a very interesting case. Like other rising powers, um, it may not necessarily have just one peer group of great states. China may look at the great powers, other fellow permanent members of the council, like the United States, France, and Great Britain. But they're also going to be looking at their other group of status peers, and these are those that are in the developing world, um, the so-called global south. And so therefore, these regional players have very particular say. So for example, in the Darfur case, the African Union and um, the League of Arab States, to a certain extent, are real sort of markers for how China tries to understand the parameters and the limits for intervention to occur. And you find again in this very particular case that it's very, very sensitive for China, because if we turn our minds back to where Beijing was in 2008, it was about to enjoy its coming out parties of coming out parties by sort of, you know, sorry, take that back, by actually hosting the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing. This is a massive moment for China. They've campaigned for decades to have this opportunity. And if we remember, there were other um, activists, other NGOs that were pushing for Sudan divestment campaigns. Um, there was this very powerful group with a very small budget, this Dream for Darfur, um, very tiny NGO that ha had a very powerful impact running this Genocide Olympics campaign. And so there was this sort of presence of this very particular status trigger that now this case had escalated so much that China was being blamed for preventing the UN Security Council from taking action. And this had escalated to the point now that there were a number of countries willing to withdraw from the opening ceremonies of the games. And this is very serious. That's a status rewarding moment to turn around and see that all of these heads of states and UN officials are sitting watching Beijing's opening ceremony. So that's a real sort of real status trigger moment to force China to consider its relationship vis-a-vis -vis its peers. How close would they really be if none of these peers turned up? And again, you also see at the same time that these groups, um, these groups in the global south move away from saying, at first it was sort of African solutions for African problems, we don't need the UN to intervene. And over time that migrates to becoming a need for the UN presence. And so again, you sort of see this balancing now where you see a movement within the P3 and also within the global south, that they all start to move to be pro-intervention. And so you start to see in this very particular case a fascinating change 
and how China conceptualizes the need for intervention in Darfur. If you think back to 2004, the Chinese position was very clear that business is business. I mean, this is a direct quote given by a Chinese foreign ministry official. Business is business. China has a business, um, trade, arms sales, diplomatic relationship with Sudan. We are not in control of the country and domestic affairs of Sudan are their domestic affairs. But by the time you get to 2007, China is the key state pushing for this peacekeeping mission to take place. And China is indeed the first non-African state to deploy to the UNAMID peacekeeping mission. And China is crucial in maintaining pressure on Sudan to permit other countries that are non-African states to also enter as UN peacekeepers. So China plays a very, very powerful role. And rightly so, their diplomats are very keen to point out that they had done things that even the Americans could not do, in part because they had this close relationship to Sudan to begin with, which, of course, you know, Sudan had become a pariah within the international system. And there's still the warrant out um, at the ICC, um, the warrant out for Omar al-Bashir, the leader of the Sudanese government. So that's that sort of Sudan case where you see a really remarkable 180 change in the Chinese position regarding intervention in Darfur, where they really don't want to see it happen in 2004. And then within three, four years, they've become one of the most forceful advocates um, for pushing to see that intervention occurs. Um, And they're willing to sort of abstain on an ICC referral that actually does lead to the indictment of a head of state. And they are willing to support sanctions and a very tough peacekeeping mandate. So again, the sort of practical application of this principled position that China does not like to see any potential merging of intervention into foreign-imposed regime change. And China also does not like to see opportunities for where states do not give consent and still have these interventions forced upon them. Um, if you fast Courtney, forward, let me yeah. let, let me just stop you there for just a second and 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 ask you, you know, you're an IR theorist, and we in, in IR realism or liberalism would wouldn't really be able to answer uh, why China did what it did, given the overview that you've just given about Darfur. And we're going to talk about Libya and Syria as well. But but right now, can you um, just tell us a little bit about how it is realism and liberalism would be inadequate to explain this kind of, of, a, of a change in position from 2004 to 2008? Sure. I mean, I think the issue I had was when I turned to sort of these realist theories to try and understand how China would be operating, I really thought that if realist theories are guiding decision making, then you would expect vetoes in the case of Sudan, where China has the closest relationship out of all of the members of the P5. They have the most dense relationship in terms of an arms trade, um, military training, um, a diplomatic relationship that's very, very close, et cetera, where China has the most significant financial investments and very close political ties. And yet in the Sudan case, and actually, frankly, also the Libya case, these are cases where China actually permitted or actually supported the intervention to occur. And then I sort of moved to the next big you know, theoretical um, literature dealing with sort of liberal theories, where you, again, you would expect that if these liberal theories have any purchase, then you would see that somehow this UN institutional setting would help clarify information, reduce transaction costs, identify focal points, perhaps over time modifying China's preferences to comply with these emerging norms like 
civilian protection, um, the responsibility to protect um, host state accountabilities, these sort of human protection focused norms. But actually what you see is that China has a very varied approach across all of these particular cases of Sudan, Libya, and Syria, which are the apex, most difficult cases for China to have handled at the council. And so again, I sort of felt that these sort of broad stroke IR theories didn't really help me understand the the actual activities going on in the real world per se. So why did China take these positions? Um, and, and what is the role of status as they're responding to these proposed interventions at the UN Security Council? Right. So I think in a nutshell, the one thing that I've argued, the argument in brief is that in order to really understand China's positions on intervention at the United Nations Security Council, it's very important to understand the impact of status, this overlooked determinant. Um, status is a standing or rank within a status community. So how you stand vis-a-vis your own particular peer group. And curiously enough, China, for the large part in the literature, as it's dealt with as a status-seeking player, has been written about as if it's only ever seeking upward status to become a great state. But by reading the details of sort of the the verbatim transcripts, you know, the, the debates, the discussions, the publicly available data that comes out of the UN Security Council, you can see that China actually has a very consistent belief in its dual status, i.e. that it is simultaneously a great power and also a member of the global south. And this means at times that China has to try and figure out its own status dilemma, i.e. how can China secure status recognition from all of its peer groups? Because sometimes its peer groups don't want the same thing. You can imagine the great states, the US, Great Britain, and France are quite pro-intervention, pro a more robust interpretation of Western liberal norms at times. At the same time, states that have been at the receiving end of these non-consensual activities, like those in the global south, um, the host state that has to take the intervention, like Sudan, for example, the regional organizations that also have very strong opinions, in that case, for example, the African Union, they might be a little bit more anxious about the need for intervention. And so it's a real issue for China to figure out how it can be friends with everyone at the same time. And then my answer to that um, is that you have to understand about if and when status comes into play and how. And I argue that there are actually two key conditions that will help you understand if and when status can actually um, be a significant factor for China. And the first is whether or not there is a status trigger, which helps heighten or accentuate China's pre-existing status concerns by emphasizing China's isolation from its peer groups, making China more susceptible to status challenges. So these can be very basic things, like a speech act that draws a contemporary parallel to a low status time in China's foreign policy. So for example, you would say something like, well, China can't host, the, can't host the Olympics in 2008. It's not a worthy host because it also has had its own support for these human rights abuses like it did with the Tiananmen Square incident of 1989. Right. So the Tiananmen Square incident is one of the lowest points in China's modern foreign policy when practically everyone turned their backs on China. So to reignite this conversation, to bring up the 1989 Tiananmen Square incident as a contemporary parallel is very, very triggering, to put it bluntly. You can also have these attacks on China's high-profile status-rewarding events. 
So again, the attempts to tar the 2008 Olympic Games as the quote-unquote genocide Olympics to produce these genocide Olympics mascots called Gen Gen Genocide. Um, these things are, again, a status trigger. And you have to think about understanding how these things are understood um, and how they are utilized by Beijing. Um, and the way that all of this sort of ties together again is that China itself, again, has to understand out of these status triggers is one sort of subset driver for the status concern. Another subset is as China's monitoring the activities of its peer groups. So they're trying to understand if and when these groups congregate around the same policy position, i.e. we believe that China should select policy option A, not policy option B. If these groups can remain cohesive with no individual state defections. So the P3 believe that we as Great Britain, the United States and France all select policy option A and a responsible great power would also select policy option A and none of them defect from that position. And that when these peer groups can make an unresponsive China pay a social cost for bucking the group standards of good behavior. So you do not select policy option A. We will now be sure to reduce diplomatic contact with you and highlight to the foreign press how you are not understanding what the concerns are of acting as a great state because you have selected policy option B. So if you understand how the status trigger and how the peer groups can come into play, in many ways, this turns out to be a lot more explanatory in terms of understanding the very mixed record that China has in terms of implementing its very principled position, where China prefers to have host state consent, regional support, and UN Security Council authorization for any type of intervention. In reality, it, of, it often can't meet all three of these standards. So then you have a very sort of pragmatic application of these principles. But that's led to a very... Um, varied record. So again, you see Darfur, Sudan, great movement where China actually you know, is willing to abstain on the first use of the, of the UN Security Council recommending an ICC referral, i.e. basically permitting this to occur. China knew that this would go through once it cast its abstention vote. You see China voting to support a very highly interventionist Darfur peacekeeping mission. You then see in Libya, China moves even further that they vote yes for an ICC referral. This is shocking for the China watchers. Many did not see this coming. They thought maybe an abstention vote. China actually voted yes back in 2011. And then China abstained on a no-fly zone, which actually was quite a robust no-fly zone. Um, a no-fly zone with teeth, as, as Ambassador Rice envisioned it on, when she was representing the United States as the US ambassador to the UN. And then you see the Syria case where China has actually moved quite um, quite directly into opposing any attempt of intervention and working very hard to rein in this sort of intervention streak that the UN Security Council had gone under. And again, these are all the cases where there is this very robust public discourse. And this public discourse matters because it helps um, create this policy window. So where decision makers can switch policy tracks at much lower costs away from tolerating or accepting heads of state, well, we have this Omar al-Bashir, so we have to put up with him, that they can actually now start to pursue debates about forcibly removing them. And again, I'm not making the claim that public discourse always matters, that narratives and words and discourse always counts, but that public discourse matters when it's embedded in wider material conditions. So this public discourse talking about foreign-imposed regime change matters 
when there seems to be proof that these are actually mass abuses being conducted by the state itself. And now that we're in this zeitgeist where we're discussing these ideas about human protection and these norms of protection of civilians and accountability and the responsibility to protect, and that all of these human protection norms are consistently invoked to protect populations under threat of mass abuse by their governments, now these wider material conditions, the reporting that says these mass abuses are occurring, the evidence that's being generated by UN fact-finding missions, etc., this now gives this public discourse meaning. And again, this is where the pressure really is on for China, because China is very, very cautious about doing anything that could remotely look like supporting regime change. So let's talk a little bit about how you came to build this um, incredibly clear theory with with terms that I found extremely helpful. I, I really liked the trigger uh, status as a uh, as, as a helpful device. You did field work. You did interviews. Um, tell us a little bit about how you gathered the evidence um, for the book. Sure. So I. I had to admit to myself, I knew I had a a difficult problem. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only scholar of China's activities, um, China's foreign policy that worries about access or worries about the ability to fully understand what's going on, um, in part because these topics are live and they are all incredibly sensitive. Um, And so I had to accept from the get-go that I would have to be willing to do the research accepting bounded transparency. To a certain extent, I'm never going to have the full archive of all the information available. And so in order to try and overcome that issue, I tried to I use this multi-sided research strategy. So I tried to draw upon documents that everyone would have. And you'll see if you ever do go through the details of the book and look at the footnotes, I really try to rely upon primary and secondary print sources that are available to everyone. So everyone can go back and pick through my footnotes and determine if they really agree with the assessment I made based upon that data. So you're talking about the UN Security Council resolutions, the verbatim records, um, statements, et cetera, all of that. Then I then had to supplement this and work very hard to conduct over 200 um, interviews, semi-structured interviews with foreign policy elites, primarily in Beijing and New York, but that also extended into Washington, D.C., Shanghai, and Canberra, in order to try and uncover the dogs that didn't bark, i.e. the foreign policy options that were on the table, but then were deselected or not Mm -hmm. properly pursued by partner states working with China or by China themselves. Because that's very important in terms of trying to construct detailed process tracing and trying to construct a detailed case study um, in order to understand how China ended up at the options it did It had to understand the options it didn't want to use. Um, And then I also took part in participant observation at UN headquarters, which is actually quite fundamental for me, Um, I think, in terms of understanding the near deference that Beijing is given, um, because there is such a concern that Beijing would utilize its veto. And so it was fascinating to understand how UN elites and other foreign um, foreign policy players, like these other diplomats working in these other UN missions, how they would try and think about working with China. Um, And so I think that participant observation really did help. And then I had this data set of Chinese language analysis on regime change and intervention. And the key finding from reading and cataloging and coding all of those particular sources 
was that regime change is unanimously always bad. Intervention can be acceptable sometimes, i.e. under those key conditions, those principal conditions of Security Council authorization, host state consent, and regional support. Um, And that was very fundamental for me in order to get a closer understanding of this sort of very nebulous connection between foreign opposed regime change and intervention that is very much at the forefront of um, China's foreign policy concerns as it sits at the council weighing its options to veto, to abstain, or to vote yes. So one of the things that the book highlights, just to get the argument rolling, was that the Security Council hasn't always been the same. So can you just very briefly remind us that of how the Security Council's uh, tendency to intervene has shifted over time such that it sets up China joining in 1971 and China's reaction? Sure. So I think, I, I think it's important you know, to emphasize that the council isn't static and that you can think about it as a unitary actor. You can think about it as an actor composed of 15 individual players, the permanent five, each with their vetoes or the 10 rotating members that come on for two years at a time. Um, you can also think about it as a social environment where there is a lot of activity going on in terms of bonding and reframing and um, reinstitutionalizing the relationships that states have and the things that states are trying to pursue sometimes aren't all tangible and held down on the paper. Um, So again, these sort of ideational variables like status. At the same time, though, the council is a living body and it hasn't always been pro-intervention. It obviously had a very long period of stasis where it had a much thinner daily schedule compared to where it does now during the Cold War um, for obvious reasons that you couldn't really move the needle too far given the positions of both the Soviet Union and the United States in the Cold War. Um, You then sort of see the post-Cold War era where there is this great move, this belief now that the West had won. And so you see this rash in the early 1990s, this sort of rash of real sort of huge upkeep, uptick in peacekeeping um, as one particular tool that was meant to come and help provide peace. And, And there is a large literature that shows that peacekeeping has done this. Um, in terms of promoting peace and in terms of um, making sure that governments do end up promoting and supporting institutions that do put the individual um, first. At the same time, the UN was also stuck with a number of very failed cases. Um, Obviously, the Rwanda, the Srebrenica cases come to mind. And this, therefore, puts the UN into a very large discussion with itself and with other players by the early 2000s, trying to understand how they understand intervention. And this is sort of where this book meets the discussion, because there is this increasing tension that the UN Security Council cannot always assume that the host state can actually be a full-blown partner. And the UN itself has come under attack by the states where it has gone in to, quote-unquote, try to help. and sometimes you are you are actually watching the council authorize responses that actually fundamentally challenge host state leadership structures in order to address the mass abuse. So again, for example, um, pushing a more aggressive no-fly zone plus in the case of Libya. And so, you know, we're sort of at this very tenuous point now where we're trying to understand how traditional sovereignty, which is all about the sanctity of the state and controlling its domestic affairs and its borders 
how this abuts against all of these emerging human protection norms that despite the criticisms one can make of the responsibility to protect or protection of civilians and accountability of the state, etc., they seem to be quite stubborn and these norms are here. And so it does apply pressure then to these governments that actually are conducting um, mass abuse against their population groups within their states, within their countries. And this is where we're now at with the councils, the councils trying to further understand to what extent it wants to push through these more vigorous interpretive liberal norms and to what extent the council is perhaps more cautious um, about respecting the trade-off with having to respect traditional sovereignty. So as China is in this environment and given the Security Council changes and this tension between regime change and intervention, you uh, list these or derive or come up with these five categories as to why China finds regime change so problematic. Can you just list those out for us so then we can get onto some of the other cases? Sure. So I think the the key thing is that the interviews that I had with Chinese elites reveal that cases of UN Security Council intervention with the surrounding public discourse of foreign-imposed regime change as a viable policy choice are the most difficult crises for China. Fundamentally, China does not want to condone or support foreign-imposed regime change as an activity or a byproduct of UN Security Council action. And there's a very rich literature um, that acknowledges that China has eased into accepting intervention, but this rich literature has not talked much about this problem and this tension with foreign-imposed regime change. And there are a number of reasons why China is very concerned about it. Um, The most primary reason that we have to understand is that the center of all core interests that China has um, is the security of the ruling party, the CCP, and that this must be maintained And so therefore, there's a real concern then that the Chinese state has about the precedent for such actions against China could be set up by precedent elsewhere. So if you're willing to accept this happening in Libya, could this one day end up at China's door? And so again, this is rooted in a much deeper, richer understanding of history, perceptions of history, um, the use of history within the Chinese political space. But the Chinese leadership has had a very persistent sensitivity to domestic disorder caused by foreign threats, a real concern about foreign pressures leading to disorder at home. Um, In part, you know, a lot of Chinese scholars point out that China's had a very negative experience in its modern history with the outside world, Um, a very real concern about the U.S. dominance in the international system and how U.S. positions could try and force themselves onto China. Um, And again, we have to fully understand that this conflation of these internal concerns, i.e. making sure that the CCP maintains its position as the ruling party over all of China, um, and that they have this very particular concern that these unexpected accidents can lead to somehow having threats to state security or color revolutions, etc., And so this leads to this conflation then that these external security concerns, what goes on elsewhere, could help propagate problems at home for China. So again, we have to understand the way that they're thinking about their current security concerns. The core interest, the number one thing, is maintaining CCP control and the security of the CCP as the ruling party. And so we have to understand, again, how all of these external activities occur 
and how they collide then with this very inward-looking need to have security and dominance at home. Um, in the book, you talk about in both the IR literature and the Chinese foreign policy literature that China and China in the Security Council is something that is is understudied. And I'm wondering if you can explore just a little bit as to why you think this is the case, that such a large power, such a focus of international affairs goes understudied. There's a literature about China at the United Nations, but that literature is patchy. And it's often written from a very detailed, um, fascinating, historical, um, methodological viewpoint. But it doesn't approach it with this idea that there's something here that we could mine in any type of um, conventional political science approach. So there's a literature there, but it's also very patchy. And I'm also quite fascinated why that is. I don't know if it's in part that the way that we've subdivided um, all of the different... There's a very rich literature that does discuss China at the UN Security Council, but it tends to be built upon basic historical updates. So a very detailed case study of one particular case, but then there's not much literature around it. Um, and I don't know what that is. If it's, if it's a concern that we've seen that much of political science now is not so interested in these sort of qualitative research methods that obviously do lend themselves to this particular understanding about why and how China acts. I also don't know if it's simply the trend now that you're trying to understand something as complex as China, and therefore there's also the headache of trying to understand the United Nations on top of it. Um, and I also don't know if coming out of it that no one really did take this particular country that seriously as an actor at the United Nations, because again, for the most part, there's a very robust literature about the United States at the United Nations or Canada at the United Nations. But there isn't really this very detailed discussion about China. And I'm not sure if that's in part because of the way that China acted um, for the first 10 years. It assumed its seat at the UN Security Council at the United Nations in 1971. And so for the first decade, Beijing was actually quite a quiet player. And James Traub famously noted that the ambassador, the Chinese ambassador was known as ambassador look out the window, that there really wasn't much interest um, at these events going on. China didn't really have a robust foreign policy at that point. It was still very inward looking. And you sort of see starting with this engagement with questions of intervention in 1981, when China cast its first vote regarding a traditional peacekeeping mission extension um, in Cyprus for the UNFISIP peacekeeping mission that's still ongoing today, that China sort of stirs itself and starts to engage in a very limited, in a very limited way, sort of casting votes, very short statements, not much policy discourse. But obviously, by the time you get to sort of the mid-2000s, China's a very busy actor. And certainly today, China is very engaged at the UN and in the broader global governance debates that we have about the WHO or about environmental degradation and climate crisis or about the nature of the reserve currency. Um, and I think I'm, I'm very hopeful that there will be more literature and more discussion on these very sort of very particular issues in a way that the literature does tend to talk to each other. There are pockets of it. Um, there are pockets of it occurring to the China IPE, looking at what China's doing vis-a-vis -vis the WTO and the GATT. Um, 
but again, I'm hoping that we can have a more sort of intricate discussion where these literatures are sort of joined together. And again, building off the sort of patchy historical record base that we have um, to try and more robustly, more thoroughly understand how China operates throughout this multilateral system at the United Nations, for example. Courtney, you mentioned that there's a robust literature in the U.S. and Canada, and I'm assuming that that is generated by Canadian and American scholarship uh, in addition to other scholarship, but perhaps driven by this sort of internal uh, desire to study your own. Um, If China is concerned with its status, would the development of a scholarly literature that places itself uh, at the center of foreign policy at the UN be something that China would be wanting to generate itself? Yes, and that literature does exist in Chinese by Chinese scholars, but that literature is serving a different purpose. Um, I guess my I should have made this clear, and I apologize for that, that that I'm talking about the English language literature discussing China's motivations and determinations for China's actions. Um, That English language literature has not been as consistent, has not been um, as regular as obviously Chinese produced, Chinese language produced output has been. But again, I think that's a real gap that actually can be filled. And I think we will start to see more effort to try and understand China at this particular, in this particular space, in this United Nations, in particular, this United Nations Security Council space, because obviously China in our day and age now is recognized as being a core player within the international community, even by critics, they can't avoid it. You know, China's simply now too large to be ignored. And so I do think that that can be something that we can hope to build upon and hope to see that the English language academic literature can start to move and engage with China in this particular space. So when you wrote the conclusion for the book, which came out in 2019, um, you offered some predictions about how China might move forward, changes that we might observe. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit of time has come past and we've had more incidents and and China's role in the world has continued to change and evolve. How, if you were writing the conclusion now, what would the takeaways of the book be? Um, How both the ones that would stay the same and, and things that might have changed? I mean, I think I would still stand by the conclusions offered in the conclusion and sort of the opening statements of the book that China simply is too large now to stand on the sidelines. I mean, and I, and I build upon comments by other Chinese foreign policy scholars to that extent that, you know, by the, by the size of its population, by the size of its economy, um, we're literally now at a point that China catches a cold and the whole world sneezes. I mean, you can't, you can't have China sitting out. Quite literally. Quite literally (laughs) at this point. Yeah, quite literally. Um, that you can't, stay at this point now where you argue that you can sort of understand global politics if you don't really try to understand or try to engage with China. So I think for that part, I would stand by that comment still. Um, I would also, you know, then obviously add the caveat that we have to be careful because China's engagement in these broad questions of intervention is a very fascinating space of really rich, um, dense engagement and real internal debate 
and struggle about how China wants to fit into the world around it. To what extent does it really want to buy in to being a peer group as a member of the Global South at a time when the Global South seems to be quite pro-robust, non-consent-based intervention? This is something that China has to struggle with. What does it mean to be part of the Global South if the Global South itself is willing to say, actually, Muammar Gaddafi is not accepted in the region, and we are willing to push that there should be pressures applied to Muammar Gaddafi because he bears responsibility for mass abuses perpetrated in Libya in 2011. And so I think, again, you know, while I look at this very interesting case, we also have to recognize that despite all the headlines that we see now about sort of China funding the WHO COVID-19 um, emergency fund, and despite the understood headlines that China did try and take the WIPO, the WIPO, World Intellectual Property Organization, headship, and China now heads four out of the 15 UN specialized agencies, that these are all sort of cases of us looking at keys, looking for keys under the flashlight. If you actually look at the much broader areas, um, all the different areas in which China could engage um, within global governance, the different functional spaces, you can actually see that China's participation is arguably quite patchy. So China is careful to engage in areas that are of interest to it. And I think I would stand by that, that that hasn't really changed over the course of the last year or two. Um, and so China is very selective about the areas within global governance, the functional issues that China is very avid and very interested to be involved in, like peacekeeping, like climate change, climate crisis, environmental mm -hmm. degradation. Um, but it's unfair to say that China is sort of a power player within the WHO global health system, for example. Um, the data just doesn't indicate that, despite what the headlines say. And I think I would again stand by the point that I made that we have to recognize that as we talk about the so-called liberal international order or this idea of a rules-based international order that's become quite on vogue these days, um, as China does become more interested in participating and actually helping to design the rules and the institutions and the processes and procedures of the international system as it deals with these problems without passports, to take the term coined by Kofi Annan, that we have to be willing to actually let China participate. And this might turn out to actually be more tricky because China does have the potential, if it should so decide, the rhetorical, um, it has the rhetorical resources, it has the material resources in terms of its robust diplomatic relationships, the size of its economy, to actually apply pressure now to sort of change how we understand the meanings applied to these principles supported by the UN. So if China could join this debate about universality of human rights, which the UN is very engaged in, this concept about accountability, these ideas about human protection norms, um, you will most likely see a very different interpretation for if and when the UN should be getting involved in the domestic affairs. But I think at the same time, again, this one more caveat, China has a very particular foreign policy vocabulary at the United Nations. So always talking about a shared future for all of humankind or our common destiny, um, the ideas about win-win cooperation. But when pushed about how these apply on the ground, when pushed about how you're going to have to make trade-offs between local opinions or ideas when you have accountability, or how will this work if something actually goes wrong, what happens if it turns out not to be win-win, there isn't that much clarity being offered yet. 
by Chinese officials. You know, when the rubber meets the road, how are these Chinese espoused ideas, the shared future, this common destiny, these win-win outcomes that China claims it can offer with its own very particular view on global governance? And that Chinese response isn't quite there yet. And I think I am amongst a group of scholars who are sort of waiting to see that response come out in a more detailed form. Because now if China chooses to engage, it is also going to get stuck in all of the blowback and all of the potential failure um, that you have to be willing to withstand if you are willing to lead in global politics. It's interesting. Um, You mentioned the environment. I interviewed Michelle Murray on her book about struggles for recognition and China. And she, one of the things she mentioned was the opportunity for China with regard to the environment to, in a sense, position itself as one of the players that can cooperate with the United States and uh, other um, nations that contribute at such a high level and that there was there was potential. So it's interesting to see the two of you um, overlap there. So what's your next project, Courtney? And also, are you worried at all about access to to China to getting back to getting back in? Sure. So I'm I'm working on two projects now. I have a the very good fortune to work with a fantastic research assistant, um, Xing Hon Lam. And he and I are co-authoring a series of papers where we try to understand what is it about China's influence um, in the multilateral system. There's a lot of hype and there's a lot of interest right now. And so he and I are basically mapping China's influence within these different multilateral institutions. So that's sort of project one. And we're in the data collection phase and trying to conceptualize what influence looks like, trying to conceptualize what apparently Chinese influence looks like, and how is this apparently different from other states' use of influence. So we're sort of messing around right now in the weeds. Um, A second project I'm working on is trying to understand how China is going to shape and is indeed shaping an emerging global information order, i.e. the order that exists about managing individual data. Mm -hmm. Um, China has a very particular view, which it's sort of relaxed over the last couple of years, but it still does hold on to this idea of cyber sovereignty. So there is this concept then that the state itself should be in charge of all of the data and all of the information within its own domain. Um, And this then means that there is less opportunity for the individual to offer consent about how the data is reused or repurposed or saved um, or mined, for example. It also means that China has a very particular position regarding these more Western espoused views about there needing to be a free flow of information, a free flow of connectivity. And so I'm sort of studying now at this point the diplomatic and the rhetorical tactics used by China and developing a more robust um, understanding of how they apply their foreign policy toolkit. And this is fascinating, again, because so much of the literature about China and international institutions all looks at cases of institutions where China was not a core player. China, despite claiming that they were there at the end of World War II when all of these institutions were sort of given life, um, China was not actually a key player at the time. And so we're studying institutions where China was not there to actually help set the foundations for these rules. And China was viewed as a technological laggard. So you sort of design a system and then China decides that, okay, it will comply and get rid of its use of landmines. But we're now looking at a point where China is actually a core technological lead. Um, And obviously, China now is at 
the beginning, at the foundation for how we try to understand the application of these rules and these norms to this discussion about how we're going to be managing 5G, for example. Um, so to go to your question about worrying about access, I wouldn't be a student of Chinese foreign policy or a student of international relations if I didn't worry about access. Um, but I try to frame my work as operating one part, obviously, within understanding what goes on within China. But obviously, China has a forward-looking face, an outward-looking face that has to engage with the world. And so I'm lucky in that sense that because my work is situated by looking at these global institutions, I do have the opportunity to try to understand what's going on in New York or Geneva or elsewhere and how China tries to project itself into these spaces beyond its own borders. So I think that does give me um, a little bit of comfort as I do worry like everyone else, you know, the system contracts at times and access becomes more difficult. Um, and so at least I have that sort of secondary site to fall back on in terms of moving forward and trying to gather data that may not exist in print and publicly accessible formats. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for spanning the time zones. You're up very late in Hong Kong and um, for sharing this work with us. Uh, to remind listeners, uh, Courtney Fung's book is entitled China and Intervention at the UN Security Council, Reconciling Status. You can get a copy on the Oxford University Press website. Uh, we're also encouraging listeners to use local bookshops that are mailing um, to keep them in business. You can reach them in the United States through Bookshop, the Bookshop app, or Indie. Um, also, obviously, available at the, uh, the more well-known online purchasers. So uh, thank you so much, Courtney, and good luck with the next projects. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you for having me.